This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. This episode is brought to you by Biome. Your gut feeling can tell you a lot, but your gut also can tell you what may be causing your IBS symptoms, like discomfort or bloating. Your gut is home to trillions of microbes that affect your health in countless ways, including digestion, mood, and your ability to fight illness. Ubiome makes understanding it simple with Smart Gut, a quick and easy at-home test that screens for microbes associated with IBS, IBD, prediabetes, and many other chronic conditions. Your smart gut test results can help you and your healthcare provider understand how your gut microbes may be affecting other aspects of your health, such as cardiovascular conditions and kidney stones. Sampling is quick and easy. It takes less than three minutes, and you can do it at home. SmartGut is reimbursed by most health insurers and must be ordered by a healthcare provider. Request your smart gut test today. Just go to ubiome.com slash friends. That's ubiome, U-B-I-O-M-E dot com slash friends. And we thank them for sponsoring this podcast. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's guest is Heather Haverleski, and she is an example of how I sometimes use my uh, editorial power to bring someone on the show that is really just a friend like this and not someone that is talking about something especially uncomfortable or a huge difference between us. Heather and I are actually a lot alike, which may explain why we didn't like each other at first. We first met 20 years ago, which we kind of reference a lot um, in the conversation because I don't know, for me, it's weird to be friends with someone after 20 years. And actually, it's even weirder to be really good friends with someone that 20 years ago, again, we didn't like each other very much. Unfortunately, we spend a lot of time in this interview kind of talking about politics and talking about our friendship, but we don't talk a lot about Heather's new book, which really is wonderful. It's called What If This Were Enough? And I think the back cover copy is great. So I'm just going to read it to you. What If This Were Enough is a mantra and a clarion call. In its chapters, many original to the book, others expanded from their initial publication, Haverleski takes on the cultural forces that shape us. From the enforced cheer of American life to the allure of materialism to our misunderstandings of romance and success, she deconstructs some of the most poisonous and misleading messages we ingest today, all while suggesting new ways we might navigate our increasingly bewildering world. Haverleski emphasizes locating the miraculous within the mundane. She urges readers to embrace the flawed, to connect with what already is, who we already are. She asks us to consider, what if this were enough? Our salvation, she says, can be found right here, right now, in this imperfect moment. And that's why you should buy the book. And you should listen to this conversation, which isn't really about the book but it's sort of why the book is so great. So coming right up, an interview with Heather Haverleski. She is the author of How to Be a Person in the World and the memoir, Disaster Preparedness. And she writes the advice column, Ask Polly for the Cut in New York Magazine. Occasionally on With Friends Like These, I actually have a friend like this, um, someone who's a genuine friend. That person (laughs) is Heather Haverleski. Heather. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me, Anna. I'm thrilled to be here. I don't know why I always feel like I need to tell people how long we've known each other. I think it speaks to the fact that I don't know many people 
for that long. Yeah, particularly professionally, since we both um, met at our, you know, both of our first. Basically, first job. Yeah. Yeah, very first job. Yeah. And we didn't know each other before that. And we didn't even really <laughs> like each other that much. <laughs> we didn't like each other before we knew each other. And we didn't like each other really very much after we knew each other. Um, and then it took like a circuitous journey of 20 years. And I was actually thinking about, so what do we, we've kind of talked about the way that we've changed um, since we first connected with each other. Mm-hmm. Um and maybe that's a topic for for yet another podcast. But what I was thinking about for this particular conversation was how you've changed actually since we connected again. Because my distinct memory of you in this era is I think we had breakfast like three days after the 2016 election. Do you remember that? No. Three days after? <laughs> Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, I'm not surprised you don't remember. Sometimes trauma does weird things to our memory. <laughs> it might have been Beverly Hills. We met in Beverly Hills, and I just erase all visits to Beverly Hills out of my memory. That's uh, I, I think most people do. That's how they keep their careers, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you were, um, like a lot of us, really grappling with how to deal with it. It really seemed to shake you pretty, pretty severely. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like I, well, the, the worst part is when you have kids who are old enough to um, know and loathe the potential president and also they're girls and they're old enough to be excited about the first female president ever. And they've been all but told that this is about to happen. Um, there's a special kind of trauma in not being able to say with a straight face, don't worry, everything's going to stay the same. It's fine. Um, yeah, it was terrible. And I feel like I stayed <laughs> in a bad state for, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't think I crawled out of that state for six months. And I was supposed to be writing this book that I'm touring with now um, during that time. And that was a, it was a challenge, to say the least. And maybe that's that's actually kind of what I what I want to zero in on because one of the things that stood out to me in in watching you from afar and then up close is the ways that you've incorporated and grappled with politics as your career has journeyed, you know, onward and upward. Like, do you see the ways that that that's kind of intertwined and expanded in your writing? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that. I I feel like before the election I had, well, you know, I've been a feminist since, you know, I don't know, when I was about, whatever. I don't remember not being a feminist. Um, I never disavowed feminism. I was always outspoken about it. Um, I didn't necessarily behave like a, you know, <laughs> feminist for a long, long time. Um, I was definitely at times... Uh, uh, sort of um, someone who... Bad showed, feminist? Were you a bad feminist like Roxanne Gay? Uh, you know, I don't even think that I can put myself that... I think bad feminist is a few steps above what I was. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my memory of you is that that you had politics, but that, you know, you were interested in making the jokes and kind of commenting on culture, not like being a feminist, if there's a distinction. Does well, that, I mean, that you know, right? I almost, I almost uh, tried to go to grad school for women's studies when I first graduated from Duke. And, uh, and that was pretty awesome. I applied actually to Santa Cruz and my wow. mission statement was something like, um, you know, women are in a completely different position today than they ever have been. And yeah, what I've noticed personally is <laughs> pretty bad. I didn't get in. Uh, thank, no. thank God, actually, because I, I would have been a pretty awful um, scholar and, and grad student at, and feminist at that point. Um, but that was right before I got the job uh, with you at suck.com. So um so, yeah, I mean, I, I kind of, when I was in college, I thought that I was going to, I actually thought that my um, trajectory would be 
that I would translate feminism for essentially for douche bros. I mean, I didn't really call them that at the time. They were like my buddies. <laughs> <laughs> they were just your friends. They, they were my buddies because they were just your friends. Okay, um, <laughs> you know, I, it's like it's like saying. I was friends with all the sewer rats and they were my buddies and I wanted to <laughs> put feminism into sewer rat language. Um, and I, you know, I still have a few friends from that time, but, um, but not a lot. Um, but, but yeah, I, I thought I was going to be kind of like a Pied Piper of do <laughs> Pied Piper to do bros, <laughs> lead them towards the light, you know? Um, and, and that was really, I was pretty, uh, passionate about that. Um, but I was also uh, a drunk and I was also, you know, a confused person. I was also really angry and confused and bewildered and insecure, as you will recall. As, as most of us were, really, at yeah. the time. I mean, self-included. Yeah. I, don't, I was thinking on the way here, what kinds of people would be attracted to work for a place called suck.com? You know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> kind, kind of angry people, you know, self-hating, insecure um, and that's what I kind of love about us in retrospect. But at the time, you know, we were all kind of like um, like angry rats that would turn on each other every so often. Um, yeah. But we needed but, a Pied Piper to lead us. But I know. And I, were that, so. <laughs> I wasn't evolved enough at that moment to uh, do the job. Not not by a long shot. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I, I was I did have political aspirations in some ways. Um in whatever kind of broken way that you have them. And also the times, and, you know, obviously we we both wrote for Suck and we, and Suck was its own kind of um, interesting sort of woke place. And it was also kind of a ridiculous, um, pretty on PC, obnoxious, um, aggressive, uh, you know, train wreck in, in various ways. So, you know, the, the times were very different. I mean, I would say that like the politics there was, I mean, kind of a sneering uh, celebration of anti-consumerism that sometimes took the form of consumerism. Um, yeah. Like we would be, we were ironically consumerist sometimes, but there was a lot of suspicion about the systems that we were embedded in. I don't think any of us had like developed like a critique if that makes, if you, if there's a distinction, but we were suspicious of where we were and like what the political system kind of was around us. I suspect that Carl Stedman had a pretty well-formed critique at that moment. <laughs> <laughs> he had a lot of critiques um, bouncing around in his brain at that moment. You know, in some ways I thought that he was, he, I mean, Joey, I don't know. They, they, they were pretty intellectually, uh, ripened at that, you know, in a ways that I, I definitely wasn't back then, but yeah, I mean, yeah. and we speak of the two guys that we worked for that people listening to this podcast probably don't know who they are. Joey Aniff and Carl Stedman, Google them. <laughs> and you were all younger than me. I just want to, I just want to mention that once again. <laughs> you were all, yes, we we're all younger than you, but not by much. It seemed like a lot. It seemed time, like, but now it seems very much not that much. The wide gulf between 25 and 23. That's right. Um, but again, so I feel like, you know, I blinked and then, you know, 20 years later, you were doing a really successful advice column um, for New York Magazine that had like a political awareness to it, you know, but I mean, what do you, where do you think you were on your journey at that point? Well, um, you know, I was a TV critic for a salon for seven years and I was sort of, you know, card carryingly not, um, not interested in the, the overall tone of salon. I was, I, I, the politics were definitely in line with mine, but the tone could be a little humorless. And I was, I was definitely into, um, a little bit more of a, an obnoxious, uh, poke the bear kind of tone still. Um, mm -hmm. But then with the with the advice column, with Ask Polly, um, I started that in 2012. I started writing it for the all. Um, and I really, I could get away with writing in any kind of way that I wanted to write. And I and because my, um, a lot of the time, the, the letters that I was the most attracted to at that point were um, letters from people trying to dump their bad boyfriends. Um, 
I, there was a natural kind of firebrand, firebrandy, uh, <laughs> firebrandy. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. A snifter no, of firebrandy, please. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I think that I I naturally sort of held held uh, you know pounded the pulpit in honor of uh, getting rid of your the all of the. Uh, internalized misogynism that that holds you back um and i didn't necessarily it wasn't necessarily overt that 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 was my message but um when i read those old columns i mean i used to go on for 5000 the whole the total word count would be like 5000 words and it would be half of it would just be like you know stop trying to be cute and pretty and get out there and live your life <laughs> <laughs> so i don't think that i became necessarily um political overnight. Uh, but I, I would say that the longer you tell people, I mean, the more the more letters that you field from um, women who are lost and, and bewildered and doubt themselves, um, the more naturally you, you wind up walking down this path towards just saying like, um, you know, this is feminism we're talking about, God damn it. And it's, it's about time. I mean, uh, there are lots of times that I'll be writing a, a response to someone's letter and I'll say, um, you know, all of a sudden I'll say, women always do this. You know, like I'll, <laughs> I'm just like, you know, this happens to women in particular a lot. And then I feel, I sometimes feel a little guilty because, you know, most things happen to women and men. And I like mm-hmm. to think that I have a lot of sensitive, interesting, cool, uh, balanced men in the, who read my column. But, uh, but yeah, so, but yes, I mean, certainly after Trump, um, I, uh, I started to, you know, put, put kind of a fine point on exactly what I was saying about, you know, using words like racist, for example, which, um, which by the way, I, I'm kind of rambling, but I just want to say, um, I did a radio interview once and they asked me, you know, sometimes I get in my capacity as a as an advice columnist, I get asked um, kind of like etiquette questions. <laughs> like yeah. people, oh boy, they don't know you very well. I do know, they? I know. <laughs> it's just like get to know me. Hello, um, people will have me on, and and they'll you know it, I'll think it's sort of going to be advice about how to handle the holidays, and instead it'll sort of be like how do you have these difficult conversations in a diplomatic way? You know, which I can't really think of anyone who's worse for the job (laughs) answering that question. Um, But I was asked, you know, a lot of bunch of me two questions. And I was sort of like, you know, some of these guys are just getting up to speed really slowly and it's kind of pathetic, but let's be patient with them. And then they said, well, what about even the, even the Thanksgiving football game? is rife with uh, controversy now. You know, all these neutral words, right? Even mm-hmm. that's a hot a hot bed of that we have to tiptoe around and how how do you tiptoe around that? And I'm like, you know, well, I mean, if your uncle George says why are those guys kneeling on the field? I think you should turn to your uncle George and say, "Uncle George, you're a racist." <laughs> um and, well, you know, I, yeah, because we live in a really racist it. country and people need to hear that. And we're at a point where everyone needs to understand when you start talking about, you know, kneeling is unpatriotic. That's a, actually kind of a racist thing to say. It's actually racist to say that. Um, and you need to do a little audit of your racism. So anyway, the the interview got um, it got cut. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're not going to cut that because that's also kind of the approach that that we take on this show. Yeah. I mean, I think that in some ways, in a weird way, like I've become more tactical in the ways that I talk to people. I don't think I'm like, I still am pretty, I'm still kind of an asshole, but as you knew me to be, um, but I try to be more, I wouldn't say again, like I'm not, it's not informed by etiquette, but it's like strategic. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. I think there's a lot of value in that. There's a lot yeah, of because I that. used to be the person that would definitely be like, that's racist. <laughs> but, you know, it's harder. Uh, uh, you know, that's sort of it's a big part of what you do. And it is, yeah. is you talk to people and you have a conversation and that's a harder thing to do than writing words on the page. You know, I mean, I I, I have the kind of luxury and, you know, the laziness of of writing um, 
you know, writing these words. Um, and I, I, you know, obviously I think that there's a place for both things. I think that, you know, it, it, there's a place for pushing people's buttons, actually. I mean, everyone's so allergic to it and against it at this moment. But um, but I do think that, you know, my buttons got pushed in the wake of Trump um, in certain ways. And it helped me. It helped me to wake the hell up and um, face myself, you know. And I think a lot of people need to do that. Agreed. And I want to take a quick break and come back and talk a little bit more, like, up to present date about Trump and, but also about like pushing buttons versus, you know, strategy and how pushing people's buttons can be a strategy. They got to pay the bills. So hold on for just a second and we'll be right back. Life insurance is really important, but one third of people don't have it. That's because it's really hard to buy. You have to work out what you need, then do the research to find the best quote and hope you don't get swindled along the way. That's not a good way to shop for anything. So Policy Genius made the whole process a lot simpler. You know, the best thing about it is that it's online. You get to compare things really, really easily, and you get to only buy what you need. But you also get to buy the best that you can afford. Policy Genius compares quotes from the top life insurance companies to find the best policy for you. It takes just two minutes to get a quote. And if you don't know the first thing about life insurance, they've got all the tools you need to get you up to speed. Learn the difference between term and whole life insurance. Calculate how much coverage you need to be sure you're making the right decision. In fact, over 4 million people have used Policy Genius to shop for insurance. Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easy, they also compare disability insurance, home insurance, and auto insurance. If you care about it, they can cover it. So whether you know a lot about life insurance or nothing at all, start your search at policygenius.com. In two minutes, you can compare quotes and make an informed decision for you and your loved ones. Policy Genius, the easy way to compare and buy life insurance. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. Let's fast forward to Trump. And I guess we can't really say post-Trump. We can just say post-Trump election. Um, And I'm really interested, actually, though, in in how like your journey into more of a um, vocal feminist and someone who thinks about structural inequalities is embedded in interpersonal relationships and advice you were giving women about specific romantic, you know, entanglements. Mm-hmm. Like, but it was, it was doing that over and over and over that kind of like you realize like, oh, wow, you know, like I'm, I'm actually writing about patriarchy here. Like maybe you didn't use the word patriarchy, but like. Uh, you know, I honestly, I honestly think that um, I always knew sort of what I was doing. I mean, I, I mm-hmm. always knew what I was saying. I knew that I was pushing people to to um, to sort of uh, 
look at the ways that they compromise their lives for the sake of keeping the peace with um, with the men in their lives and look at the ways, you know, more, more than that, probably, uh, you know, I think that I've always been focused on um, how hard it is to actually have love in your life if you're trying to be better, if you're trying to seem better than you actually are and you're trying to seem more sweet and feminine and uh, agreeable than you actually are. Um, that's something that I learned in a lot of hard ways over the years. And um, and that's a very kind of personalized, you know, emotional feminism, if, if that makes any sense, um, that, that I think... I didn't necessarily associate um, the feminism of Adrian Rich or, um, you know, or some of my other f- favorites um, with kind Bell of hooks. Like, yeah. Yeah. Right. With with this more personal feeling of um, how much, you know, it, p- there's always like this this talk among women of, oh, I'm standing in my own way again, you know, and it's sort of like, well, you know, this realization that oh, I'm standing in my own way because I believe that um, I can't show my real self to anyone. I can't actually be who I am and still have love in my life. Um, and so that's that was kind of an awakening. But I will say that in terms of just becoming more um, outspoken and using words like patriarchy, which I used to see as somewhat distancing and alienating, uh, as a as a word, um, I don't know. It's weird because you know th- these things happen. But I was going to say that these things kind of occurred over the course of a few years by just spending too much time on Twitter, partially, um, <laughs> and just being exposed to a lot of you know. You follow people, you love their writing, you follow their article, you know, articles. You read more articles. You, I mean, even though I had this, you know, I was a basically a women's studies minor in college, um, and I took lots of classes on Marxism, you know, all this stuff has always appealed to me. But, um, but I don't think that I understood the value of being, um, like owning the words and being a little bit loud about it, um, for a while. And I also think, you know, Trump led to, you know, Trump obviously, um, had, had his part in that for a lot of us. Um, and then there's just the other level of just, um, looking at, who voted for Trump and realizing yeah. that white women need to, you know, really audit the way that they move through the world and, and, and talk about feminism. Like one thing I think is interesting and it may be kind of a parallel phenomenon is in the same way that, you know, giving people advice about interpersonal relationships kind of gave some life to the feminism that you already had, let's say, like gave it some blood and, and guts. Yeah, because it sounds like yeah, because yeah. you know you you land in your own kind of comfortable position, which which kind of ties directly to to white women in this country. I think um, <laughs> you're married, you have kids, you have two incomes, you're doing okay, um, you're making it, you're getting by. Um, it's easy to forget how um, how hard it is uh, as a as a girl and as a young woman. Um, to kind of keep a solid sense of yourself in a world that really doesn't like female things that much. I mean, I, I doesn't like young women, doesn't like old women. We don't, I mean, that we all, I mean, you're kind of taught to be, you know, see yourself as a princess and as a, you know, a a darling little, you know, spark of light when you're a girl. And then as you get older, you become, you know, as you become a young woman, you get more suspicious, um, if you want love, you're desperate. If you don't want love and you just want sex, you're a slut. Um, you know, it's it, it, at some point I sort of like, I wrote this piece um, about how you can't make a good choice at one point. And it was like, you know, from the moment you're born, you're making mistakes, um, which I just think is part of the female experience in this country. Um, if you're getting older, it's sort of like a moral failure. Like, oh, who has the bad taste to get old? What's wrong with you? Um <laughs> You can't be single. You can't be married. You know, uh, one thing that I felt really acutely when after I had kids was um, how much we hate moms. It's sort of like we kind of glorify moms on the one hand. And then on the other hand, it's like, oh, a bunch of moms. Look at those moms. Soccer moms. 
You know, there's a lot of denigration towards uh, women who, you know, have kids oh, you and can't, that's part of their but lives. But you can't make a right choice. But what no. you mean by you can't make a right choice. Like, I don't have kids and I get pushed back on that, right? Like, there About is not no having right kids? choice. Yeah, yeah, there is no right choice. That's what, that's actually what it is. For women, there is no right choice. But yeah. again, I want to make a parallel connection here um, or uh, draw a parallel uh, between like you kind of getting to this more, again, like flesh and blood kind of feminism through thinking about um, romantic and interpersonal relationships and the way that in the wake of Trump's election and the Me Too movement, that has pushed some women to think more radically about feminism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. One of the things I got asked was like, do you think that the reaction of women to to Trump and the Me Too movement is permanent? And I was like, well, it, the oppression is permanent. <laughs> you know, I mean, like not permanent, but like, like the yeah. thing that we're reacting to isn't going to go away. Yeah. So I think we probably are going to keep reacting to it. I mean, well, I guess it, everything happens in waves, but there's always this tone of like, when are you guys going to let this go? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, why do you keep insisting on pointing out reality to us? We are so bored with this story. It has nothing to do with us at all, except in a bad way. Um, exactly. It is so, when are you going to let this go? Like, we heard you. We heard you. Okay, okay. Yeah, simmer the <laughs> fuck know? down, please. Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's like our, our little fixation, right? <laughs> when are you girls going to let this go? Jesus. <laughs> Get over it. Yeah, talking about sexual assault. Yeah. Jeez. Who Come cares? Come on, calm down, lady. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's amazing because it's, it's, I see that everywhere right now. And yeah. it's, you know, it's, I just feel so frustrated because I feel like men, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this, it, it, this even makes any sense to say, but I just don't understand why I'm not seeing more men kind of beat the same drums that we're beating. You know, I just, <laughs> I, I, maybe that's a lot to ask. I don't know. I just, I, I can't, I don't really, I don't really get it. I don't really get it. Cause it's, a, we're reaching this point where, you know, um, I don't know, it just needs to happen. Right. I mean, pick up the flag and run with it. It's just like, I, you know, it's, it's like after Trump, I think a lot of white women said, oh my God, like if I don't get in, in the, the fight, you know, against racism. I'm just, I'm worthless. Like I have to help with that. I can't just right. do white women's feminism for the rest of my life. And I feel like men don't, you know, need, need to see all of these, these movements for justice in the same way. It's like, it doesn't, it doesn't, you're not benefiting from a world that's lopsided and screwy, you know? Um, I don't know. That's well, yeah, they are, but I mean, there's costs too to men, but they're, they're not, you know, written in the same ledger as the ones for women. I mean, there's less like physical costs. There's less like um, financial costs. Like their costs are all kind of emotional. Um, but what I, I was thinking about is I think one reason why women, white women have been able to at least hear about intersectionality and to think about racism as a common cause Um is in some ways kind of related to the idea that we can't make a right choice. It's like we're used to like seeing oppression in every, like the structure of it, like working everywhere. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I think men in some ways, especially white men, obviously, like they believe there are right choices to make. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they believe like there's a, there's a, cor a correct and proper path that yeah. if they take, that there will be a solution. And also, hey, I must have made them because here I am. Yeah. I'm doing great. <laughs> no one's ever sexually assaulted me. I guess I'm making the right choices. Um, and I think in a way, though, that makes them hesitant to, like, make common cause with people who, who are trapped in the worlds of all the wrong choices. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Um, and I also think it has to do with with a, a kind of guilt that they may be aware, unaware of, but, but I think exists for a lot of well-meaning white guys 
which is the knowledge that they have maybe not just tacitly and passively benefited, but actively benefited and actively oppressed other people. Yeah. And you, how do you, you can say a lot of really nice words about justice and equality and patriarchy and white supremacy and make a lot of the right noises, but real feminism, you know, real intersectionality, real deconstruction of white supremacy requires you to be accountable for your, for your actions. Yeah. And I think like we white women, like we've, we, we're actually, this is one place where our facility with taking, with taking um, responsibility for things sometimes that we don't feel responsible for, like we're over responsible for yeah. stuff. Yeah. We know how to take responsibility for things. Right. Exactly. When they are actually, both when they're their fault and aren't our fault, but we're good at it. We're good at kind of figuring it out. Yep. yep. And men are terrible at it. Oh, I White mean, we take especially. responsibility for other people's misperceptions of us. Not only yeah. their percept, not only our behavior, not only our actions, not but also the we we hold ourselves accountable to being misunderstood. Essentially, like um, I, <laughs> I feel like the 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 process of reckoning with what you haven't done, you know, and and how you might be to blame, and how your you know you're sort of culpable within these systems where, you know, you, you basically, you basically feed into a system that is broken and you let it, let the status quo continue because it's, you're protected. Um, I think that that process of reckoning is one, I mean, it's not a far cry from what I ask people to do in my column. It, and mm-hmm. if I know anything from the column, it's that once you begin down the path to reckoning with you know, doing a heavy audit of how you function in the world and how you behave and what you have on board. Um, it's, it can be one of the best. I mean, I think this is why I'm saying I don't understand why men aren't in the fight partially because I just, I, I feel like I understand how much they have to gain mm. um, from actually reckoning with their culpability and accountability and, and facing, you know, holding themselves accountable you know, it's like, first of all, you're freed essentially from this like onslaught of feeling guilty for everything you do, because as long as you can, the, the world can see that you've, you know, you've really looked inside your, you know, hamper of dirty laundry and you understand what's there. It's a whole different, it's a whole higher level of conversation. But it's also true that you, you know, the levels of denial that get peeled off and the understanding of how to live and breathe in the world and feel good in your own skin. I mean, I don't know. There's so many benefits of looking at the truth, right? And living in reality instead of denial. And I think resisting a lot of these these um, these movements is kind of just, I don't know, It's it comes as second nature to us as Americans because we just, our whole culture is a culture of denial and escapism and, you know, uh, from the moment uh, the first, um, you know, deluded dreamer, fantasy <laughs> addicted humans stepped foot on American soil um, and went about systematically murdering um, the people who lived there, um, you know, we've been wrapped up in this self-created myth. And and Donald Trump is the is the epitome of that. Freeing yourself from that level of toxic myth um, should be should feel incredible right um but you're right that reckoning doesn't come it does come as second nature to women and it doesn't for many many reasons just having you know grown up in a society that's not ours doesn't belong to us wasn't created by us and um and it doesn't come naturally um to white Mm -hmm. men and that's it's it's obvious um and the thing is when you when you say you're acting like you know an overlord, you know, your reaction when you say simmer down, when are you going to get off this? Like you want, you want to tell these people you sound like landed gentry when you say that, you know, like (laughs) it's like you're talking to your hand servants. You get that, right? Um, But it's, we just sound, you know, obviously we just get painted as hysterical for just calling it like it is a lot of times. And that's, you know, and, and again, obviously it's humbling to, to say things like that and just, you know, because it's just like, I hear this echo of like, 
yeah, join the club, motherfucker, you know, that comes from the, you know, people of color and, and as it should. Um, yeah. And 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 it's a, we're in a sort of a weird time where, like, I feel like there are levels of, like, whelping. I mean, there, there are people sort of finding, awakening and finding new allies. And um, there's a process by which the, the allies, the people who were already awake and already aware of their oppression, there is this moment where you're like, again, yeah, about time, motherfucker, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's a touchy period, right? Like there's legitimate anger on the, on the part of people of color and native peoples and, um, people with disabilities and, you know, LGBTQ people, um, who, who can see more clearly, you know, than you and I, like relatively well-off, able-bodied, straight white ladies. Yes. And have been seeing clearly for years and years and are, are sort of like, you know, hello, new to the party. Uh, you're boring me already, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, but so, by the same yeah. token, I, I do think, okay, just in the spirit of uh, strategy or, um, yeah. you know, reaching across the aisle, um, I would say that I drove across the country this um, this past summer and, you know, you go into these tiny little towns. Um, I grew up in Durham, North Carolina. The population was set for years and years. Um, and... And, you know, it was black black and white, you know, split down the middle. And the, the town is used to be very split down the middle, too. There's a black side of town, a white side of town. Um, and then, um, you know, a lot of uh, immigration kicked up, and there are Mexican restaurants all over town now. And I remember when I graduated from school and moved to San Francisco, coming back for the holidays and feeling like my town had changed. Um, and when you drive— across the country, you do see demographic changes everywhere you go. You can see that little towns uh, have have changed. And it's, you know, it's a touch, it's a touchy thing to even um, have empathy for, you know, old white people who don't want their towns changing. You know, it's sort of like, you know, tough, tough shit is what you want to say. Mm-hmm. Um, but by the same token, I think that if you can't address the, I mean, it's, is it is is it a racist fear? I mean, I think it's partially it partially is, but there are a lot of things wrapped up. I mean, I don't think it's acknowledged as such, and there are a lot of ideas about what America is, mostly mythological, but they're wrapped up in this in this strange little um Disney version of like a little white a little white small town, you know, honest to goodness American nor you know ordinary folks. One of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth. Yet most of us don't do it properly. (laughs) Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, more affordable, more enjoyable, and to make you do it the right way. But without, I mean, not really scolding you. Um, It is a beautiful piece of equipment. I always like to have beautiful things around me, especially in the bathroom. Um... That sounds weird. Uh, I I do, though. Um, When you are in a place where you may look in the mirror and not necessarily always feel great, it is nice to have beautiful things to look at, to soothe you, and to look back in the mirror and think, I can do this. And I can do this with this toothbrush. (laughs) The Quip toothbrush features sensitive sonic vibrations, gentle enough for your sensitive gums. My gums are very sensitive. But honestly, the best thing about it, it... besides the looks, is that it it gently guides you to make sure you're brushing the right way. It has a two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. It guides you to a full and even clean. It doesn't require a clunky charger either, and it runs for three months on one charge. And since three out of four of us use bristles that are old and worn out, Quip delivers a new brush head automatically on a dentist-recommended schedule of every three months for just $5. Quip is the first electric toothbrush accepted by the American Dental Association. It has thousands of verified five-star reviews. Again, it is beautiful. I like to use beautiful things. Uh, I really appreciate the guidance it offers me. It's a it's a guidance without scolding. It's like a it, you make sure you're doing the right thing, but you don't feel bad having been told how to do it. It's like the best yoga teachers. That's why I love Quip and why they're backed by over 20,000 dental professionals. Quip starts at just $25, and if you go to 
getquip.com slash friends. Right now, you will get your first refill pack for free. That is getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash friends. Would you buy a t-shirt for $50 if you knew it only cost $7 to make? I wouldn't. You probably wouldn't either. And with Everlane, you never overpay for quality clothes. Everlane only makes premium essentials for men and women using the finest materials without traditional markups. And they tell you their real costs so you know you're never overpaying. Everlane wants you to know what you're paying and why. They are radically transparent about every step in their process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories that they work with. Because Everlane sells directly to you, the prices are about 30 to 50% lower than traditional sellers, and Everlane's clothes look better, cost less, and last longer. Essentials like their Cotton Crew t-shirt are exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, and made from quality materials. I'm a big fan of the silk short sleeve square shirt. I have it in kind of the peach color. I guess it's also called millennial pink sometimes. Uh, And I usually wear it with the high rise skinny jean. The silk short sleeve square shirt, which is kind of hard to say fast. um, It's been great for me like all summer and into the fall. Silk is one of those materials that kind of, I guess it's four season. Here in Minnesota, it's really kind of three season. Which brings me to the other piece of clothing from Everlane that I love, which is the Cashmere Crew. It is simple. It is uh, incredibly well-made. And it, it is that kind of cashmere that really does last you from the first crisp days of fall straight through to what here are the really ass-cold ends of winter. So Everlane's timeless essentials are just what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now you can check out my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends, and you will get free shipping on your first order. That is my personalized collection at everlane.com slash friends and free shipping on your first order, everlane.com slash friends. I think what's freeing, it's freeing to know the myths though, right? Yeah. Because I think one one myth that we tell each other, right, is actually has to do with the fact that these small towns were somehow like always small towns that always had this same vibe, even like Durham. Like Durham probably has a far more complex history than the, you know, 20 years that you grew up there. I mean, I know that it does, right? No, like, it's only the- as complex as I know it to be, Anna. Um, I mean, I, I was born there in 1970, which was a full two years before you were born. So I don't think you can tell me. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a, there is a complex history to these places that we, you know. And so when people say, like, I just don't want it to change, yeah. like the thing that they, they mean, erase. I want it to stay in 1975 forever. Yes. They, yeah. they, what, they mean, what they mean is that I don't want it to change from the way that it is that I know it. Yeah. Because places are always changing. The like literal complexion of places are always changing, right? And there's always like periods of upheaval and violence that then get kind of written away. That's and right. That's right. Right now we're experiencing a period of upheaval and frankly violence. And mm-hmm. what I think those of us who want to keep moving forward are saying is that you you have to understand that this isn't abnormal. This is actually part of what we have to do all the time in order to change the structure of society. That is true, but I but but there's an emotional appeal, right? I mean, back oh, when sure, I sure, sure, back Myths when are I was all about emotional appeal, thinking that I'd be the Pied Piper of feminism, for example, you know, it was sort of like you connect, you connect. See, now I'm on to strategy because I, I feel that you've implied that I'm not strategic in my <laughs> spreading the word and becoming the Pied Piper, and now I want to be the Pied Piper again. Um, but but I actually think that if you address the fear, I, I was kind of getting to this, like, you know. A little bit of empathy goes a long way. And if you address the fears that are there, um, I mean, it's hard because you you sort of don't want to cater to, you know, the sort of awful, uh, deep, deep-seated racism that lives in all of us. And yet by the same token, I think that, um, I think that teasing out the racist pieces of it is actually, I feel like it's possible to do that if you start from a place of, you know, a lot of complonk, a lot of things have changed, you know, a lot of things have changed. And and we all want, we all have nostalgia for, you know, a dream of America that probably never existed and only exists. No, we don't all have that nostalgia. I and mean, that's the, I mean, but yes, you're talking about the old white people. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. And I, I, I well, I, all I'm saying is, you know, in terms of, okay, so are young people going to go to the polls, right? Will they? Oh, Will they go? Wow. Like, we just got really current. Well, <laughs> we, it's... We, just, we, 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 we've spanned in, from 1970 to like three weeks from now. I, you know, I, it's, I'm just anxious. I'm very anxious, Anna. I'm very anxious. <laughs> very well, anxious. You, as you should be. And yeah. as, I, as I am as well. And sure. Yeah. Let's close out by talking about the midterms just specifically. Sure. Like, yeah. yes. Please I mean, continue. I, a part of me wonders, are, the, are young people going to show up at the polls? I hope so. But I feel like election after election, you you ask, you plea. And I, look, I blame whatever. I, I, I blame myself just as much as anyone else. I was somewhat apathetic. I always voted in big elections, but um, but it's easy to kind of see the world as not your world yet when you're young. I, I have a lot of empathy for that. But I but part of me, you know, wonders if, uh, you know, are we putting too much pressure on young people to to save us when we're at a, we're having a moment where um, it, I don't know. I, I think that there's a very common thread, at least um, in social media and in, in writing about these things where, you know, it's a useless waste of time to reach across the aisle or try to reach people who are still undecided. And I mean, I, I think we have to face the reality that um, a lot of people just are sort of neutral because it's incredibly inconvenient to take a side, you know? I mean, it's especially now. Um, so, but I just, I would just say, you know, reaching people who are fearful and, you know, no matter what kind of, you know, when you reach people, you create the possibility that you can get them to have compassion for themselves. I mean, if you can, it is, you know, it's in hard to reckon with yourself, right? the way we're asking people to reckon with themselves in order to join, you know, the side of justice, let's call it, since it's convenient to call our side the side of justice. Um, it's but, but when you, if you can reach people emotionally, um, I mean, that's something that Obama did so well. Um, oh, Obama. Beto, I think, is great <laughs> at it. Yeah, I mean, yeah. not to just, you know, fall into a million liberal cliches, but... Do, do, what do, what are your thoughts about that? I mean, do you think that there's a way to both, you know, embrace the radical edge of, you know, progressive, progressive Democrats, but also reach uh, whatever moderate? I don't know. What does the word moderate mean anymore? <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't believe there's a such thing as a political moderate. Um, that's one maybe as discussion for a a, a different. Uh, episode. Yeah, we t- we talked but, about um, that a little bit. Shorthand of of that is that I think people have positions that don't necessarily line up with one political party or the other, but true moderates, which is to say people who have genuinely middle of the road feelings about let's say every issue, yeah, um are pretty hard to find. <laughs> yeah. I think. Yep. Um I think you might find someone who's like cliche of like being a social liberal and a conservative a fiscal conservative that doesn't mean they're moderate that means they're a social liberal and a fiscal conservative like th- that's you know it's two different things. Um they don't cancel each other out in the middle. Do you know what I mean? Like yep. that doesn't mean yeah. that they're that doesn't mean that their their fiscal their conservative fiscal beliefs are moderate conservative fiscal. They're conservative, you know. Um uh, as far as like b- people who aren't voting and and can and who the Democrats should be asking to vote, um, I think that outreach to Trump voters is of limited value, um, limited gain. I, um, I'm not really I'm, talking about Trump voters. I'm actually just talking about people who find themselves alienated by all sides. Right. I do think Let that me, there is that kind of uh, voter right. out there. Well, I actually would say what I was going to make a distinction is between Trump voters and people who don't vote. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it is very worth the Democratic parties and the you know social justice movements while to activate people who think that they're shut out of the system because you know what? Those people are shut out of the system a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. They, they're re- their reasons for not voting are kind of good reasons. You know, like if you've seen that America doesn't care about people like you, whether that means you're like lower class or not college educated or, or not white, 
um, then asking someone to participate in that system, of course, you're going to be reluctant. Of course, you're going to say, like, I don't know why I should bother. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if I'm poor and I just keep getting poorer, like no matter who is in charge, (laughs) you know, asking me to, you know, getting that person to to take valuable time out of their day. And this doesn't even get into like, right, like all the structural problems that there are that exist in order to suppress people who are already like cynical about the system, suppress the votes of people already cynical about the system. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I guess my sort of feeling is if you're cynical about the system, then you probably want the kind of reforms that progressives have to offer. <laughs> like you're probably a voter who would benefit from the kinds of things that people like you and me want to put in place. I think that's right? true. I think that's absolutely true. But I actually, I my feeling is that we're kind of saying the same thing. What we need around those, the, those um, kind of the, around the talk about how the system doesn't work for that many people or it doesn't work for many, for the majority of people, um, is an emotional appeal. Because you have, what, what you see with Trump and with the people who are in his camp is this very emotional appeal based on fear. Um, you go to these rallies and it's really, they're really about fear and, and they're about, they're kind of about hatred, honestly. Um, and if we don't have a compelling emotional way to reach people, then we will lose, you know, you, of course you're going to lose to, to emotions that strong, to an emotional appeal that's that vivid and obvious. Um, as stupid as it looks to us, um, you know, reaching people at that level, at that emotional level, I mean, it seems like it's something that's a little bit missing from the picture at this moment. It's not that, it's not that liberal policies don't make perfect sense for working class people and middle class people. It's not that you can't point to a long list of atrocities that have been put into place by Trump's administration. Um, it's that you that the translating these things into an, into um, a positive counterpoint, you know, a very emotional, passionate counterpoint. It's something that Bernie Sanders admittedly did really well when he was campaigning. And it's something that I think is is missing a little bit from um, the picture, and, and and part of that is is inclusivity. Um, I feel I feel strongly that you na- you name the people you want to lift up, and you include as many people as you can in that narrative. If that makes any sense, it makes total sense. And what I was about to point out is, I think you're right. You know, Beto and Obama and Bernie Sanders, and gosh, I wish I could name a woman, um, but I can't off the top of my head. Um, have done a good job of activating those emotions. Um, God forbid Warren, a, a female candidate act emotional though, right? I mean. Right, exactly. I mean, I think Elizabeth Warren does give great speeches and can kind of get people riled up in a way that seems to work without getting her called shrill by too many people. Yeah. <laughs> now they've got whole other things to call her. But, yeah. but what I was going to say is that I think that one thing that we could do, and I think, you know, people like you and me and actually people at Crooked Media, Jason Kander, um, anybody who's telling stories right now. Yeah. Like is to try and say, like, let's not count on the candidate to do the emotional appeal. Let's tell the stories of the voters. Oh, let's tell uh-huh. the stories of the people that are affected by these policies mm-hmm. and have you connect with that person rather than necessarily having to create a candidate that's like, ultra charismatic. I mean, we, of course, you want a charismatic candidate. Of course, you want a candidate that connects emotionally. But I feel like the more we can relate policies to not just candidates, but to the stories of the people that live in our communities, yeah, like the less we'll have to rely on that singular, amazing, charismatic candidate, which, you know, that personally comes around like every once in a while. Yeah. It <laughs> so. does feel like there are more of them uh, coming out of the woodwork at this moment, you know, move, move to act uh, by forces, malevolent forces working on all of us. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I, and in a way, this gets back to like you're kind of turning going from the personal to political, which is I think what has happened is that people who were directly affected by the malicious policies of this administration, some of them have decided, you know what, like I'm I'm not just going to 
vote, I'm going to run for office. Yeah. And those people have a have an emotional connection because they're not they are both the candidate and the person mm-hmm. whose story matters the most. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, more people like that. Um, Heather, we have to start to wind up our conversation. We didn't talk about your book at all. Do you want to say something about your book? I'm such a good salesperson. <laughs> I did not mention my book once. Um, but it's well, called, you're, you're, should I say it's what it's called? It's actually related. It's, well, I'll say it in the <laughs> intro, but also your book is related to this stuff. Yeah, Because it it's about feeling alienated. A lot of the essays are about feeling alienated from the structures that we, we live in. Yeah, right? absolutely. And it's, it's a... Uh, it sort of, it was, my book was for a brief time all about Trump because I couldn't stop writing about him. Um, <laughs> and, but yeah, it's about, uh, it's about how our culture, how we landed here, really. I mean, it's, it's, it's about what, what kind of crazy culture would bring us this man and how could we possibly be embracing him? What kind of fantasies and delusions have we been uh, feeding ourselves and each other um, to have landed here? That's a, such a good summation. I don't think I, I think that's a great place to end. Yeah. Um, People should buy it. It's great. There are stories about gurus and consumerism and bad parties. And, you know, it's very unlike, unlike some of the stuff we talked about, it's also very funny. So it is funny. It's funny. It's in some ways, uh, you know, our moment couldn't be funnier in a very dark, (laughs) in a very dark way. Um, Yeah. And the book has all of that stuff in there. Um, what if this were enough is the title. I should say the title at least once people should buy it because it's a really good book. There are lots of really good books by women out there. This is another one you should buy. Thank Um, you, Anna. Heather, it it. is always fantastic to talk to you. Like let's do it every couple, you know, more often than every couple of years. I think we're getting better about that. Yeah. So I think we are. I think we're getting better at our talk too. We have have (laughs) productive talks now. They don't just devolve into uh, trips down memory lane. uh, Right. Or yeah, exactly. They're definitely more productive than the talks we had when we were even talking about memory lane. Like we've gone from stony silence to (laughs) trips down memory lane to talking about the ways that our lives like intersect and are parallel to like now. I think we just solved a lot of the world's problems. We did. We did. All we all it took was our two brains, uh, and we fixed. We just fixed everything. Don't break it again, guys. (laughs) And on that note. Thank you so much for joining me, Heather Haverless. Thank you for having me, Anna. I had a great time. And that is it for the show. And I, I want to give you a little behind the scenes before we go, because that's that's it for the show, like I said. Um, uh, I recorded the ads and the intro and this outro at home, and it's taken a lot longer than it usually does because Exley, my rescue pup, is not having a good day. There, he just knocked the microphone he's kind of half in and out of my lap because here sitting at the desk there's really not room for him to sit on my lap because he weighs 50 pounds um but he's just having a day and he's had a couple freak outs and we've had to calm him down we meaning me <laughs> and i don't know i i wanted to let you guys know um because as this has been happening and i i won't lie sometimes my patience wears thin But even as it's been happening, I am consistently amazed by my own capacity for generosity when it comes to this guy and all my pets. But Exley can be pretty difficult and he kind of interrupts things in a way the cats don't. And again, while I lose my patience or get frustrated, I never yell at him. I never think he's a bad dog covered his ears while I said that. And I guess I want to remind everyone the way that that reminds me. We need to treat ourselves with that same gentleness and generosity. When we freak out or have a bad day or fly off the handle for no reason, you are still a good person. You still deserve all the treats in the world. That is it for the show. Please take care of yourself and, if applicable, give someone a belly scratch. For me and Exley. Until next week. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. 
But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.